Open your Bibles, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 38. Today, we resume our study of this prophecy with verses 14 to 28. Jeremiah chapter 38, we'll begin at verse 14. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, will you not listen to me? Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, as the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of those men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared and this city shall not be burned with fire and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then the city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans and they shall burn it with fire and you shall not escape from their hand. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Judeans who had deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly with me. Jeremiah said, you shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord and what I say to you and it shall be well with you and your life shall be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which the Lord has shown to me. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon and were saying, your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans and you yourself shall not escape from their hand but shall be seized by the king of Babylon and this city shall be burned with fire." Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no one know of these words and you shall not die. If the officials hear that I have spoken with you and come to you and say to you, tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you, hide nothing from us and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been overheard. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day that Jerusalem was taken. May God be praised through the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and all these little episodes took place so long ago and were carefully recorded so that you by your Holy Spirit might make us wise in faith and salvation. And so Father, we pray you'd bless both the preaching and the hearing of this passage, Lord, to our salvation benefit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Luke 16 records a parable in which Jesus spoke of a certain rich man who lived in luxury, but he was hard-hearted to the poor who were all around him. One of those poor people was a godly man named Lazarus, and he lived in abject misery right outside the gate of that rich man who did nothing to help him. Well, in, in the course of time, both of the men died, and poor Lazarus was gathered into God's blessing. 
But the ungodly rich man entered into the fiery torments of hell. And there he discovered there was no remedy. His last chance was over. He was in eternal punishment. There was a great chasm fixed between his misery and the eternal blessing of the godly people like, dead, like poor Lazarus. And so the lamenting this, the, the rich man begged for Lazarus to be sent back as a warning for his five brothers. They were just like him. They were going to go to hell the way he did. And, and he asked that Lazarus, yes, Lazarus, let him be sent back from the dead and he'll give a warning to my brothers. As Jesus tells the parable, Abraham refused. And he noted that the ungodly brothers have Moses and the prophets. He said, let them hear them. They have the witness of the word of God, and that is sufficient. But, but the rich man pleaded, no, 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 he, he knows they're not going to believe the Bible. So he says, but if a man comes from the dead, kind of a, a Dickens Christmas story type thing, supernatural phenomenon, that'll persuade them. And Abraham responded, no, it will not. Verse 13 of Luke 16, 31 of Luke 16, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Well, if Jesus had been looking for a, a historical example of what he was teaching in that parable of someone who heard God's word but would not, be, would not believe, would not repent, and as a result ended into fiery judgment, and Judah's last king, Zedekiah, would have been a pretty good choice. And Jeremiah 38, 14 to 28 tells of the final meeting between Zedekiah and the prophet Jeremiah in which a most persuasive appeal was given but did not result in the king turning his heart. Jerusalem is about to fall to the Babylonian assault. In fact, the next chapter, the long-awaited fall of Jerusalem is our next sermon, Lord willing. And Zedekiah is going to have to face that emperor who he had betrayed, Nebuchadnezzar. And years of listening to his counselors, pursuing every manner of foolish and worldly scheme, had all come to naught. It was a failure. And so in this last resort, he appeals to Jeremiah to give him some message from the Lord that he can hope in. And yet God had long foretold this very judgment. There would be no avoiding the calamity now. Like the rich brothers of Jesus' parable, all he had had to do was listen to the word of God. He had a prophet who delivered it to him. This is not their first meeting. He had a direct word from, a, from the prophet Jeremiah to him. And, and even now, he could still be saved if he would believe and repent and turn. But Zedekiah did not listen to God's word. He, would, he, he did not accept its bad news, not realizing that the bad news of the Bible cannot be avoided apart from repentance and faith. Well, in Jesus' parable, the brothers of the condemned rich man would never believe the parable awaiting them, yes, even if a man was sent to them from the dead. And as Jeremiah is brought out of his confinement to this last meeting with King Zedekiah, he must have looked half dead himself. In recent weeks, Jeremiah has been beaten. He's twice been held in underground cisterns that were so noxious that he came very close to dying while he was there. At the request of the servant Ebed-Melech, Zedekiah had agreed for Jeremiah, Jeremiah to be pulled out. He'd virtually exhumed him from that grave. And now he's going to have this clandestine meeting with the bedraggled prophet. 
Well, the king's troubled state of mind can be seen in the secrecy of this arrangement. Look at verse 14. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. Now, I have no idea where that would be. I don't think anybody does, but it's probably a royal entryway, but it's a secret place. It's a place where there's discretion. The king can be there, and in the shadows he can meet with people. It speaks volumes about Jerusalem that the one man capable of speaking truth must be spoken to in shadows, with whispers. And in that private setting, verse 14, the king asks urgently, I will ask you a question, hide nothing from me. Now what's interesting is he never gets around to ask the question because Jeremiah already knew what it was. The prophet knew what the king wanted to ask because they'd had virtually the same conversation just shortly beforehand. In in chapter 37, verse 17, the king asked, is there any word from the Lord? That's the question. And by the way, the answer to that is always yes. We have the Bible. It is the word from God that answers our questions. Jeremiah, the Bible's the prophets and the apostles. Jeremiah's a prophet. Is there a word from the Lord? He said, yes, there is. He'd been delivering it for years. And here it was. God had determined to judge Jerusalem for its sins. He called the people to repent. But there had been no repentance. And so he, this was a message in chapter 37. You shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. That's the, that's, the, that's the truth. That's the word of God for you. So here's the question. Why was the king, having just been told that, why was he coming back to Jeremiah if he did not intend to repent? Well, well clearly, the reason is he was hoping that this time he would somehow get a different message from God. Well, Jeremiah not only knew what the king wanted to ask, but also that the that Zedekiah did not want to hear the answer he was going to give. Look at verse 15. If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. Only recently, Jeremiah had been declared a traitor. He'd been sentenced to death for saying what he wants to say, that Jerusalem will fall, the people should surrender. Walter Brueggemann compares him to the English cleric Sir Thomas More in the time of Henry VIII. If you know about the time of Henry VIII, he wanted to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. He had kind of shaky grounds for doing that. And Sir Thomas More, whatever other issues he had, he was a man of great integrity. And so he was a leading person in court. So they came to him. Uh, The king wants to get divorced. What do you want to say? And he just refused to speak. He just wouldn't answer the question because he knew if he spoke, his head was going to roll. It didn't matter, his head rolled anyway. But uh, Jeremiah is somewhat like that, except in this case, I don't think it's because he's afraid. More likely it's because he's frustrated. The man is wearied. He's physically broken down by beatings and his solitary confinement in dank holes. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because his heart was broken over what was happening right now in God's city. So I think we can understand why he asks, is there any point in this conversation other than you harassing me or you ignoring me? That's Jeremiah's response to the king. But the king was earnest, it seems, in desiring Jeremiah's answer. He answers with a vow, verse 15, as the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hands of these men who seek your life. Now the vow is invoking God. Uh, he, when he says, God who made my life, what he means is, if I, if I break what I'm about to say, may God 
put me to death. Now, now dare I say, though, an oath from a man like this is not impressive. He is an accomplished and inveterate oath-breaker. That's what got him into this problem, except in this case it seems that Jeremiah takes him as being in earnest. And so he agrees. He will repeat the message he had been speaking for so long. He'd been preaching it publicly. He'd been saying it silently, but O king, if you want the answer, here it is again. The Lord called Zedekiah to surrender to Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar, in which case he would live and the city would not burn. That's the answer to your question, uh, Zedekiah. But he goes on and says, if Zedekiah did not obey the Lord, if he did not surrender to the besieging army, then he would suffer the worst. Verse 18, if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans and they shall burn it with fire and you shall not escape from their hand. Verse 18, in that case, Zedekiah's worst fears would come true and the city, the holy city of God, entrusted to his care, would be destroyed. Now let me say that this scenario depicted between in this secret meeting between the king and the prophet, is repeated virtually every day in our world. When inquirers ask Christians what the Bible says, and by the way, that ought to be happening. It's not that hard as a Christian to, to be different today. If you're really living according to God's word, and people should go, uh, they should, and, and people will come to you, maybe in secret. What does the Bible say? And a faithful Christian will not offer platitudes about God's love and peace, but they will tell people what they need to know because of what the Bible says. Namely, that all mankind, including you and me, have broken God's law. And we stand under the righteous condemnation of a holy deity. A terrible and just judgment is ordained when after this life all will stand before God's throne and we will be judged for our sins. Revelation 20 verse 12 gives you a pretty clear picture of that happening. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And that's that's compounded by Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so just as the biggest problem facing Zedekiah, and somebody had to tell him, was that this is a judgment from God on him and Jerusalem. Likewise, the biggest problem that people have that they need to know from the Bible, whether they realize it or not, is that they are under the wrath of a just and holy God because of their gross and many sins, and they are awaiting a final judgment. That's what they need to be told, and they are told this. This message is witnessed by caring and courageous believers. It's preached in faithful churches. It's broadcast on Christian media. And yet, the vast majority of people do not respond. Now, they're like Zedekiah. They, 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 they're hoping if they come back later, they'll get a different message. They, if they come back to church at a different time, maybe there'll be a, a nicer, more palatable sermon than the one I'm preaching right now. Maybe they'll find another church. It's not too, it's really... It's conservative, but more amenable, not, not so stridently biblical. That, that's, that's, that's the popular thing today, and they'll have plenty of options. Uh, they'll seek contrary opinions. Zedekiah had the false prophets. He'd go to the false prophet and say, you know what Jeremiah told me? And they'd go, don't listen to Jeremiah. He's not interpreting things correctly, even though they're false prophets. People do that today. They will, they will attack the motives 
of the biblical witness. That's what they did to Jeremiah. He was convicted of treason for this very message. And these are all the tactics, but here's the problem. None of these tactics will make the biblical message something other than what it actually is. It remains a message of God's holy judgment on the unforgiven sins of all people. Well, the reason the Bible does not yield, the reason why when Zedekiah comes back to the true prophet, he doesn't get a different message, and the reason is that the Bible is God's word and God does not yield. God does not change. The creator of heaven and earth is not intimidated by mere earthly sovereigns, nor is he intimidated today by cultural influencers and cultural elites who may not like what the Bible says and make fun of it. Sin remains sin despite whatever label we choose to put on it. God remains holy and just. He requires that sinners be punished as the rebels that they are. And so the question Zedekiah should have been asking is not whether it was a message he, he liked. He should be asking, is it true? And it's very clear that he accepted Jeremiah. He understood Jeremiah is a true prophet of the Lord, and yet he would not accept a message And though he would not accept it, he could not avoid what that message said. Well, this inability to be convicted over sin, as the the Bible teaches judgment, this inability, unwillingness to repent, lies at the heart of sinful man's total depravity. They are not able to do so, Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 2.14. The heart of of sinful man is at enmity to God. There's an inward rebellion. Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in transgressions, unable to respond to God's word. But let me say that none of those truths are going to be an acceptable excuse when the day of judgment comes. When judgment actually happens, it's going to do no good and say, well, I have a wicked, rebellious, corrupt heart. That, that's, that's, the evidence, that's the evidence against you. That is not going to be a help. And so although Zedekiah would never accept the message of God's judgment, he nonetheless could not avoid it. The next chapter shows Jerusalem does fall to Babylon. It is put to the torch. And that imagery, should be, should, we should think about that because it's the imagery Jesus uses. Jesus describes hell as a place where sinners are thrown into the fiery furnace. Sometimes people will say, we don't believe that that hell involves actual fire. Fire is a mere symbol. My response to that is, of what? Of what? Of of what? What is the reality if the image of fire is a mere symbol? Well, Jesus says it's a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for those who would not believe, but nonetheless could not avoid the judgment proclaimed by God's word. You know, one would think that people would prefer to avoid hell, as it's described in the Bible. Just as you would think Zedekiah would, would do virtually anything to avoid the burning of Jerusalem, his own deliverance into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And of course you say, I've done everything I can think of. I've had every crazy, you name it, I'll I'll try it right now. Except one thing, and that is to obey God. The one thing he had not tried, would not try, is to bend the knee to the Lord, to repent and believe and obey. And likewise today, people will do anything to stave off the problem of death and its implications by any means except that of believing the Bible. 
And the reason is that their hearts are hard to God's word. Their wills are rebellious to the Lord. But like Zedekiah, none will be able to avoid that judgment foretold and forewarned. In the words of Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Well, the fall of Jerusalem and Zedekiah's captivity were already ordained by God. But in a very important sense, they still did not need to happen because God offered a way out. Because the Bible not only presents a message of judgment that cannot be avoided, it also offers good news of salvation for those who will surrender to God. That's the second thing we see in this passage. The same Bible that speaks the truth about divine judgment and our guilt and the reality of hell, whether we like it or not, we cannot avoid it except by that salvation that God mercifully gives in his abounding grace to those who surrender through faith. Look at verse 17. Jeremiah tells the king, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared and this city shall not be burned with fire and you and your house shall live. Now again, the question of the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem, the Babylonian exile, it had already been settled, but the details mattered. How it happened would make a very great difference. And and the worst parts of it could be averted by a last-minute surrender to God's will. A surrender to God, in this case, meant ceasing the vain defense and going out to submit themselves to the admittedly fearful judgment and justice of the Babylonian king. Except that God had also given promises that if they did that, God would restrain. God can govern Nebuchadnezzar as well as anybody else, that God promised that they would not suffer at his hands. They would not suffer grievously. God was keeping faith with his people. In fact, he was, all of the whole Babylonian conquest, the whole Babylonian captivity was God's way of, of chastening his people to draw them away from their sins. They, were, they become an idolatrous people. So he sends them for two generations to live in the world capital of idol worship, Babylon. And the record shows, both historical and biblical, that it worked. One thing it's true of the, of, the, of the Jewish people after the Babylonian captivity, you never see them worshiping idols again. And so God is going to save them if they will submit. Surrender to Nebuchadnezzar was a way of expressing obedience to God and faith in his promise of salvation. Now, Jeremiah explains all this one last time to Zedekiah. If the king would surrender to the Babylonian army that, by the way, was just about to break through the defense then his own life would be spared and the city would fall but not be burned. That's a big difference. Zedekiah found it hard to believe that Nebuchadnezzar would let him live after all the treachery he had shown to the Babylonian emperor. But surrender, you see, here's what surrender is. It required him to cast himself entirely on God's power in the confidence that the Lord would keep his word. That's what's being demanded of him. That's what the offer and call is. Now, people today, I know, will offer a sigh of relief and say, I'm sure glad I don't live in the Old Testament. That salvation was rough back then. He's got to surrender. And I'm, I'm a Christian. All I do is believe and I go to heaven. Well, let me say, if that is your way of thinking, how grace, greatly you are mistaken. Because the New Testament, yes, it teaches salvation through faith in Jesus. But what is that faith? 
Saving faith involves the very surrender that God demanded of Zedekiah. Please understand that saving faith is more than believing. People say, oh, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm good to go. Well, faith involves not less than believing. There's things you believe. But it is a surrender to the Lord. It's trusting Jesus as Savior and committing to him as Lord. And Jesus asserted this very thing when he told us to take up our cross and follow him. (coughs) Jesus said whoever would save his life will lose it. (coughs) Excuse me. But whoever loses his life, that's a surrender. Losing control of your life, losing sovereignty over your life. Whoever would lose his life would surrender his life for my sake, will save it. On one occasion, Jesus spoke of people who, who believed. They said they, they said they believed. They called him Lord, Lord. But they would not surrender to the will of God. And Jesus gave this assessment. He said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Saving faith is this very kind of surrender to God. Now, for Zedekiah, surrender to Babylon, it meant renouncing his own efforts at self-salvation. And faith in Jesus requires the same. We must renounce our claims to false righteousness. We must confess the guilt of our sin. And we must appeal and receive through faith the saving righteousness that Jesus alone provides. Zedekiah was required to take God as his word, to obey his commands. He was required to trust God's promise to protect and save him. And and our faith in Jesus calls for us to rely on God's promises while we obey his commands. Let me say that again. Faith in Jesus requires us to rely on God's promises while we obey his commands. A.W. Pink writes that faith means a throwing down of the weapons of our rebellion against God. It is a total disowning of allegiance to the old masters, Satan, sin, self. It means declaring of Jesus, we will have this man to reign over us, Luke 19, 14. It is taking his yoke upon us. It is submitting unto his scepter. It is yielding to his blessed will. In a word, saving faith is, as Colossians 2, 6 puts it, it is receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord. In a word, it is giving him the throne of our hearts. It is turning over to him the control and regulation of our lives. While this call from the Bible to surrender is not salvation by works, no, it is salvation through faith. We surrender, why? Because we believe God's word. Because we trust Christ to save us. We yield to the Lord as sovereign. We we follow Jesus because we believe him, because we trust him. And if we do not surrender, it can only be because we do not. I like the example of Noah. God comes to Noah in the book of Genesis. He says, Noah, this is my paraphrase. Noah, there's going to be a great flood. Don't worry, you know what that is. You're going to find out. And the way you're going to be saved is by building a really big boat. It's called an ark. You've got 120 years, then the flood's going to come. Now, you go to Noah and you go, Noah, uh, you're talking to the Lord? Yeah, the Lord told me there's going to be a worldwide flood and I've got to be saved by building a big boat. It's going to take me 120 years to do it. Well, do you believe that? If Noah says... Oh, I believe it. 
and is not then chopping down trees and working on the ark, then he is not right. If Noah believes the Lord, he's saved by faith alone. But if he believes he will commit himself to what God called him to, he will build the ark. And if he does not build the ark, he will not be saved. And the reason he will not be saved is because he did not believe. This biblical call to surrender is salvation by faith. Now consider what Jeremiah offered Zedekiah was of inestimable value. And so also is God's offer of salvation to us. God was saying to to, to Zedekiah, you're you're not going to die. Jerusalem's not going to be burned. That's incredible good news. And God says to you that you will be forgiven of all your sins, though you are guilty before God. You will receive the gift of eternal life. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 5, 24. And so Jeremiah appeals to Zedekiah to consider. Look at verse 17. If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life will be spared. And this city shall not be burned with fire and you and your house shall live. Derek Kidner calls this promise an astounding invitation. When we consider the greatness of his sins, the depth and the breadth of all of his sin, the wickedness of Jerusalem, and yet here is the Lord. He is so abounding in grace that even at the last minute, he offers them mercy if they will believe, if they will surrender through faith. And this astounding invitation is made to you today. It's made to sinners of every stripe and every degree, whether you are a murderer or an adulterer or a thief or a petty gossip or a run-of-the-mill liar. We could go on and on. Uh, Earlier I read the first part of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but praise the Lord that doesn't end there. It concludes, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. You deserve death. I deserve death. That's just the truth. But he gives the gift, he offers the gift of eternal life that we will live forever in his glory as people justified through the blood of Jesus. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's very bad news. But the next verse says, those same sinners are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to be received by faith. Romans 3.24, the blood of Christ, the, 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 the atoning, redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, received by faith, and all those sinners will be saved. You see, here in the gospel, then, is the ultimate reason why we shouldn't resent the Bible's teaching of judgment. In fact, God's not hurting us. He's not doing something mean when he warns us of a judgment. No, it is the way to be convicted of our sins so that we confess them. And by confessing them, we lay hold of Jesus. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling and we are saved. My friends, divine judgment on sin is ordained because of the unyielding holiness of God. People say, you know, pastor, I don't like the doctrine of judgment. Well, sorry. I lack the ability to change it for you. And if I was in my right mind, I wouldn't even think of it because it is an implication of that perfect and glorious holiness of the only true God. But that same God is filled with grace and mercy and in the gift of his son to bear judgment, to bear your judgment on the cross, God's grace abounds 
for those who repent and believe. Well, until the very moment when Jerusalem fell and Zedekiah's fate was sealed, God extends mercy after mercy. It's just, isn't it remarkable just to see he doesn't give up in the gospel offer until the judgment comes. And likewise, at this very moment, God's servants are proclaiming his grace, his gift of salvation through his grace in Jesus so that sinners may be forgiven, that they may escape the judgment of come, to come if you will surrender to God, if you will confess your sins and trust his promise of eternal life in Jesus. Well, why then we wonder, given the certain fulfillment of God's word, did Zedekiah refuse to submit to God by surrendering to Nebuchadnezzar? And the answer is in our text, the answer is that the king was afraid. He was afraid. He was afraid to do that. Not not that he feared God. No, he didn't fear God. Despite everything Jeremiah could say, he showed no trembling at God's word. No, he feared what people would say. He feared what people would say about him and what they would do to him. Look at verse 19. There's two classes of people he's afraid of. One class consists of Jewish leaders. They seem to be officials who had already surrendered to the, to the Babylonians. Look at verse 19. I am afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly with me. I think we can assume these are not necessarily godly people who'd heard Jeremiah's message and were submitting to God. It's most likely the other party within the government that was in exile. They, they, had, they had been the pro-Babylon party since they were, they were supposed to be under Babylon. They, they didn't like the plans the king had, the pro-Egyptian party, and so they had gone into exile, and they're now with the Babylonians. And what he fears is that when, if he no longer has the protection of his royal position, that when he's on the other side amongst them, they're going to blame him, which he is blameworthy of. And they're going to point the finger at him and say, that's the man who causes calamity. Actually, the language suggests that he thinks they're going to you know, stone him or lynch him or, or physically abuse him. And he's afraid about this. Now, doesn't it tell us so much about Zedekiah's self-serving and craven nature that with his city's state and, and, and the, the, the lives of all his people in the balance, all he can think about is himself. The, the idea of noble self-sacrifice simply never crossed his mind. John Mackay writes, Zedekiah focuses on the indignities and sufferings he would personally have to endure. He ignores the plight of his people, especially if the siege continues until the city is overwhelmed by the Babylonians. Now, there may have been something to the king's anxiety, although I don't think Nebuchadnezzar would have gone in much for mob justice. And yet the true antidote for fear For fears like that which Zedekiah had, the true antidote is faith in the Lord. He won't believe the Lord because he's afraid, but the antidote to fear, the saving antidote for fear, is faith. And Jeremiah urges him with a direct revelation from God. I I have an answer for this very issue. Verse 20, you shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord and what I say to you, and it shall be well with you and your life shall be spared. Well, like Zedekiah, fearful Christians need to banish the anxiety of fear by trusting the promises of God. Here he has a specific promise about that very scenario. He needs to answer fear with faith in God's promise. 
Now, you may say, I wish I had a promise from the Lord, and you do. And one of the promises of the Bible that I often think of that means about most to me is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, where the risen Christ says to his people, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And I confess, I'm one of many people who've thought of that in anxious times. But Christ, the risen Christ, has promised he's not going to forsake me. I'm not on my own. I'm not, I'm not alone. It's not just me against the, the, the dark powers. The sovereign Christ says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And that is believing that is the antidote to fear. It goes on and says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews thirteen sixteen. Well, Jeremiah not only had a clear and specific promise urging Zedekiah to believe, but he had a warning about what was going to happen if he didn't. Zedekiah feared being humiliated. And yet if he feared, if he did not trust the Lord, if he feared and didn't believe, then he would be shamed even worse. The picture here, it's a vision that Jeremiah shows him of the women of his household publicly mocking him. Verse 22, Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon. They were saying, Your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. Jeremiah has a vision. This is going to happen if you do not believe. Now, what's going on here, I think, is that in the ancient world, when a kingdom was overthrown, it was the usual practice for the deposed ruler's harem to be taken over by the man who defeated him. And that's what's going on here. It's Zedekiah's concubines that are being led out to be handed over to their new masters, Nebuchadnezzar and whatever lord he chooses to give them to. And as they depart from burning Jerusalem, Zedekiah's concubines are hurling insults and taunts and contempt in his direction. It was all true. They, they knew it completely. He's a weak man. They knew that. He listened to the wrong people. It, it brought him down. Now that he's in the mire, nobody wants to help him. And it, you know, it's bad enough to be mocked by your enemies, but to have these female intimate companions now publicly disparaging you in this way, well, it was a severe humiliation. And similarly, many people today will not repent. They will not believe because they're embarrassed to do so. It's a serious matter. What, what will people say about me if I publicly come forward confessing my sins, believing in the blood of Jesus, and taking him as Lord? My friends, if you, if you avoid humiliation now, what did Jesus say? If you disown me before men, I will disown you before God. And it's true that as a Christian... That you, you're, yeah, there's opposition and, and you lose friends sometimes and people will mock you. But you'll be justified in the presence of God through Jesus Christ. You'll enter into glory. And Matthew Henry comments, whatever we seek to avoid by sin will be justly brought upon us by the righteousness of God. He is going to be shamed far more in unbelief than what he feared in faith. Well, the reality is that Zedekiah has a lot more to feel, fear from Nebuchadnezzar than from these political opponents and their abuse. He should fear the judgment that Nebuchadnezzar is going to inflict at God's hand. And Jeremiah warns him, I guess, he, let's get back to the main subject, verse 23. All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans, and you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but you shall be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire, verse 23. Nebuchadnezzar was the hand of God's judgment, his justice. 
And he's reminding us that we should fear God. We should fear God's judgment above all things. You know, that's what Jesus preached. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him, God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. And so Zedekiah is, on the one hand, he's paralyzed by fear of these exiled officials who are waiting with the Babylonians. But he's even more afraid. He's afraid of the officials who'd left him. He's even more afraid of those who were still with him. He he continues to bear his soul to the prophet. And he urges Jeremiah not to let these officials, the courtiers, the, the cabinet members, don't let them know what we talked about. Verse 26, let no one know of these words and you shall not die. If the officials hear that I have spoken with you and come to you and they say to you, tell us what you and the king, uh, what you said to the king and what the king said to you. Hide nothing from us and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. Well, this craven counsel reveals a weak man a weak ruler who is dominated by his princes, by the the officials around him. See, Zedekiah assumes, no doubt rightly, in fact, we know rightly, that they're watching him. They're watching Jeremiah. They're watching him as well. And they want to know what he and Jeremiah were talking about. And these are the same men who sentenced Jeremiah to death for preaching surrender. And Zedekiah fears if he, though king, does not toe the line what they want to do to Jeremiah, they will do to him as well. And so he gives a little advice. He, he concludes the, the, the encounter with a little advice. Here's a cover story for you to give. Now, so with the king paralyzed with fear, fear about the wrong people and the right thing, notice what happens. The decisive moment passes. I'm sure you've experienced this. This, this is what often happens. You, you, you prayerfully and courageously and hopefully lovingly, you present the Bible's teaching of sin and wrath, divine judgment, the way of salvation, and their response is nothing. They change the subject. He just changes the subject. Oh, let me give you a cover story for our meeting today. That's what he does. There's no direct response at all to Jeremiah's appeal. Derek Kidner writes, on this note of anticlimax, the fate of a kingdom is left to take care of itself. I wonder if Zedekiah knew what was the truth, that this was his last opportunity. You know, you never know which is your last opportunity. I I appeal to you. If you have not surrendered to God through faith in Jesus, don't just change the subject. I'd rather you yell. I'd rather you argue. That's a better sign. But what you should do is you should believe. You should surrender because this was his last chance. The city, his family, the king himself are going to be judged, but he's trapped in fear because he does not possess faith. Well, he shows concern for Jeremiah. He warns he's going to be interrogated. He gives him the cover story. Back in chapter 37, Jeremiah, their last meeting, Jeremiah had said, please, I just beg you, don't send me back to that sister and I'm going to die there. And so the king says, if they ask you, say that you came to ask me that again. That's the cover story. And uh, this happens, of course. Verse 20 20 shows that they come to him, or verse 27, they they ask him the question. And Jeremiah, it seems, makes the very evasion the king had told him to make when he's questioned by the officials. Now, does that mean he lied to these menacing princes? Well, the commentators are divided on the question. 
And Philip Ryken takes the position that Jeremiah lied. There simply is no other way to put it. Matthew Henry, however, makes an assumption that Jeremiah must have renewed his plea. He not only, there's things that we're talked about here that we're not told about. And he, he assumes, because of Jeremiah's godliness, that he must have renewed his plea. And he's merely selectively telling the truth. He is, in Matthew Henry's words, he's following Jesus' counsel to be harmless as doves and wise as snakes. Well, I don't really have, I don't know which way to go on that. Uh, was he sinning? Was he being wise? What I do know is he's a human being. It's at the end of his rope. I, I, I think it's not just fatigue. And he's physically, he's emotionally spent. But he just had this decisive encounter that the fate of Jerusalem hangs on. I don't think he had, I don't think they have his attention. He frankly could care less about them. He, he, he tells them, maybe he did tell them about the king. If he did, it was a sin. But Jeremiah is not concerned with these petty officials. The, the passage ends. They had no evidence. No one had overheard the conversation. Verse 27, he's allowed to go back to the court until the end comes. Well, let me conclude the sermon by pointing out the dynamic between fear and faith that we see in this passage. So vividly played out in Zedekiah's ruinous inaction because this warrants consideration by each of us. John Guest writes that for the king, the choice was between his fears and God's facts. You have his fears, but then you have God's facts as it ever is in the life of faith. It's a choice that that Christians face very often. Let me give you some examples. It's the same choice presented to Christian singles who know that scripture forbids marriage with non-believers, 2 Corinthians 6.14. But they're afraid that they'll miss out on what may seem like a good opportunity for marriage and they're worried if they trust the Lord and obey his commands that they're just gonna miss out and they're afraid. And it's a challenge between fear and faith. Let me give you another example. It's the man and he's ambitious. He wants to make something of his life. And he's afraid that if he doesn't sacrifice everything that the ladder of success demands and often the ladder of success demands everything that he's not gonna be the man he wanted to be. And and, and on the other hand, he's called to be faithful, be faithful at work, be fruitful, but also be a faithful father, be a faithful husband, but he's afraid. He's got fear, and it stands against faith. The, the, the examples could be multiplied, but the question of fear versus faith amounts in every case to a test of whether we trust the Lord or not. That's what it is. It comes down to a test whether we trust the Lord and his promises or not. Well, David faced that challenge. We read about it in Psalm 56. And he prayed to the Lord, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Psalm 56, three to four. Many times I've counseled people, whatever decision you make, let it be that of faith and not fear. Don't, don't let it be fear. Do faith, trust God's promise, obey his word and, and work it out. But don't let it be faith that rules you as a Christian. Well, Zedekiah twists on this most perilous string and Jeremiah urges, here's the biblical truth, that trusting God's word always provides the way of escape. It's always the way of blessing. It's always the way of protection. It's always the way of security. Trust God's promises as you obey his commands. And he pleads with Judah's king on the very brink of Jerusalem's destruction. 
He urges a choice of faith, faith, verse 20. He says, obey now the voice of the Lord and what I say to you and it shall be well with you. And that same promise is extended to every believer in Jesus. In whatever situation we are tempted to fear, if we have faith in the Lord, we will trust his promise so that we obey his commands. And if we trust God despite all that the world may do to us and throw against us, this promise still stands. It will be well for you. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that you would bless what we've studied today to every one of our hearts. Lord, I pray for those who, like Zedekiah, have not accepted, they've not faced, they haven't thought, been willing to think about the danger of final judgment. They need to be saved, Lord. Would you open their hearts that even right now, that they would just put all their fears away and they would be saved by trusting in you and surrendering unto you in Jesus' name. But Father, help us who are believers, that we would think about this fear versus faith. And let us be like the psalmist. Let us say, when I'm afraid, I'll trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.